I know sometimes it, it seems like a foreign thing for us to pray, but we should dedicate ourselves to prayer. We should be a praying people. And we are coming to the end of a journey today. We have gone all the way in this these past, I think, two years now through the book of Acts. So we are in the last chapter of Acts and we are concluding our study. And it is whether you realize it or not, I don't know if you've learned as much as I would hope you've learned through this walk, but it is an uncommon thing to have preachers and churches and pastors who 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 work through books of the Bible. But the reason we do that is to build your biblical literacy so that you can see. But also, I think, you know, the Lord worked providentially, as he always does, in probably the most uh, oppressive time in the church in terms of whether it's things within the world or society or just things like a pandemic or a tornado or whatever the case, more than anything we have learned during this time is that God's church perseveres. God's church withstands all things that happen. And, you know, while, you know, this has seemed like it's been a very destructive time to the Christian faith, what we learn about the Christian faith is that in the Bible, if they could survive actual persecution, they could survive people actually taking their lives Then our church. And I don't mean this church locally um, specifically, but I mean, the church is going to survive. Jesus Christ has promised us that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against his church. They will prevail against anything that calls itself the church that isn't the church. But in terms of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail. And we have that assurance. And therefore, we are talking about in our final sermon. And actually, we are talking about assurance, as you can see. Now, assurance, whether we realize it or not, we all want it. We all want assurance in really all the areas of our lives. We all want the confidence of everything that we do in this life, don't we? We want the assurance of knowing that the college that we're choosing is the right college. We want the assurance of knowing that if we go to college, that we're going to get the right degree so that we can make the right amount of money so that we'll find the right career. We want the assurance that when we're dating someone, that we're dating the right person to marry the right spouse. We want to we want the assurance that if it's time for us to buy a house, we want the assurance that we're buying the right house. We all want the confidence, that blessed assurance that the things that we do are a guaranteed outcome that we can rely on. That's what we all want. Now, the problem is, though, and if you've lived long enough or short enough, you've realized that in life we are guaranteed almost nothing. None of us is guaranteed the beating of our heart the next second, the next moment, the next day the next week, the next year. And many of us will prospect and we'll make all these plans and look into the future. But we all know that we don't have that true assurance that if we plan for the next day, that we're actually going to be there for that day we plan. That's it. In fact, really, the only thing that all of us are guaranteed is that we will all meet our own end at some point. At some point, at some day, we will all have a definable end to this life. That's the only thing that really is guaranteed. Now, this is the thing. How do we find assurance in between the moment that we are born 
and until the moment that we leave. In between that time, where do we find assurance, the assurance of life? The answer is found in what we hope in. Whatever we hope in, that's where our assurance typically lies. How can I know with surety anything in life? This is what we all want to figure out. But not only that, we must know that whether we have assurance or lack it, it completely affects everything that we do in life. It affects the way that we live. I remember there was this girl who had gone on an interview and she was pretty convinced after going on that interview she was going to get the job. I mean, she absolutely killed it. All of us have been at some point, if, if you've interviewed and you've known, like, I killed that interview. I'm getting that job. Well, this girl, like this one of them times, like, I killed that interview. She was like, I know I'm getting that job. They love me. And so to celebrate this job that she knows she's going to get, she goes and she orders like the fanciest designer purse that she can get. She like, you know, I got this new job coming. It's moving me to another tax bracket. I'm making money I ain't never made like I already know. And so she doesn't stop there. She not only gets that new job or she not only gets that new purse, but she also decides, you know what? I might as well just go all in. I mean, I'm getting a new job. I'm in a new tax bracket. I might as well go ahead and finance me a new car. Like, I know I can't afford it right now, but when that job kick in, like, I'm going to be able to afford it. Like, she knows. She's like, you know what? But I can't just drive around them old dusty clothes I've been driving around in. I don't just need a new outfit. I need a new wardrobe because, you know, I'm moving to an executive level. I'm going to have an office. I'm going to have a new tax bracket. I'm going to have a new car. I'm going to have a new purse. So my clothes got to look right with all that stuff that I now have. She knew that she was getting this job. And because she was getting this new job, she knew she would easily be able to afford all of these things. She had what we call assurance. But y'all know how this is going Y'all know the problem. She didn't get the job. But the idea that she was going to get the job absolutely changed everything that she was doing. She purchased new things. She wanted to drive new things. She wanted to wear new things because she was sure I'm getting this job. Now, was her assurance misplaced? Absolutely. But I want you to see that her behavior changed because she was confident in an expected outcome, even though she was wrong. So my question for you is, how has your assurance of the faith shaped how you live? Today, we're going to see how Paul's assurance of faith transformed the way that he lived. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 28. This is the beginning of the end. Acts chapter 28, we're starting at verse 1. It says, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. 
When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put, a, they put on board whatever we needed. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in this message, you're going to show us what it means to truly have assurance of faith, God. You're going to show us what it looks like, how that changes our behavior, how that shapes who we are, the, the decisions we make, the places that we go, our reaction to the things in life. So, God, we pray that as you are giving us this assurance, as you are providing for us this assurance of faith, that it will be rooted, it will be grounded in the truth of your word, God. And so we ask you, as we navigate through this last chapter of Acts, that you will give us what we need to be sure of where we're going. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you may notice here that it said that justice would not allow him to live, which is the reason why he must have been a murderer. But if you notice in your text, justice is capitalized. Let me tell you why. Because the Greeks, which the Maltese people would have been, uh, have adapted that theology, they had a goddess. And this goddess was named Justice. And they believed that she was the one who ultimately executed justice, especially when one had seemingly escaped said justice. Now, what had happened here is that Paul and the others survived multiple storms. They survived a broken ship and a crash. And now it appears that the goddess justice is going to even the score because they assume that if Paul has survived all this and now he's going to die from this snake bite, he must have done something like murder someone. And so they believe that justice is going to rule. And so they've landed on this island called Mountain. When they get there, Paul needs to gather some wood as it is cold and raining. And as you remember, it's cold because they were nearing winter because they had sailed at the most inopportune time to sail. And as he does this, this poisonous snake, sensing the heat that he had provided by trying to kindle that fire, comes out. And as Paul gathered the sticks, not discerning that one of those sticks was actually a snake, it bit him. And these Maltese people had obviously had some familiarity with these types of snakes, and they knew that this was the beginning of Paul's end. The moment that that snake bit him, they knew Paul was about to die. 
And, you know, this may have actually been one of the reasons Paul gave us the text in 1 Corinthians 4. I'm sure he had many reasons, but I think this may have been one of the reasons, 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, that we are therefore to not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, I think it is interesting, though, that the Maltese people here are not much different than us. They're not much different than the people who live now. They are no different than the friends of Job who said, Job, you must have done something wrong to have the wrath of God, the justice of God fall on you this way. They are no different than the disciples when the blind man comes to Jesus and they say, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents that God has acted retributively in this way? Because we lack our own assurance of salvation, because we lack our own assurance of faith, we tend to judge everything, everything that goes wrong with us or somebody else as God's retributive anger toward us or them. That's what happens. We think that God is always trying to get us back. But why is that? Why do we feel like that? Why do we feel like the, the other shoe is going to drop even when things start to go well? I think it's because we don't understand what it means to truly have confidence and expectation in someone who is actually greater than ourselves. See, the issue, the struggle is, is that our focus tends to be inward. It tends to be insulated. We are the author of our story. But we always think there's this ghostwriter, right? Who, even though we're the author of our story, there's this ghostwriter, namely God, who's going to throw in a wrench to our story, who's going to ruin things when they're going well. And because we lack that confidence in God, in the assurance of our faith, you know what happens to us? We grow pessimistic. Even a good day has a bad, a bad time in it. We're expecting even when things are going well, something will go wrong. We don't trust that God is actually good or at least that on the other side of life that there really is the promise of an eternal rest in him. So we start to think, I'm not sure that there is something on the other side of this. That lack of assurance right there affects everything that we do. We tend to look at everything through the prism of how it looks at the moment. We look at everything through the prism of how it looks at that time. And all of our lives are judged in that one moment. That's why we tend to make all our decisions, not look into the future. But how does this, this decision affect me in this moment? How does this change my life today? How does this change the way that I think and act and feel right now? We have no concept that the decisions we, we make right now are affecting us in the future. Because when we lack assurance in the future, we lack assurance that we will spend an eternity with God. We only think the things we do right now are the things that matter the most. 
And, you know, we all know these kind of people, don't we? These are the people where if they spill their coffee in the morning, like their whole day is ruined. If somebody cuts them off, like the day is a wash because of it, because they look at everything through the prism of what happens to me now. They're also the kind of people who, if you make even one mistake, they'll say, I knew it was going to happen. Some people only have a perspective of now. And they have no assurance of the future, therefore. They judge everything as it happens now. This is truly why Paul said that we are to not judge anything before the time, because eternally the Lord will return and he will bring all things to light. See, these people here thought the same way. They believe that because Paul has survived that storm, but now has gotten bitten by the snake, that he must be some sort of murderer because the goddess justice was getting him back for his penalty, for the penalty of his sins. Now, the interesting thing, though, is that it isn't what necessarily happens to Paul that's significant. But what the, the interesting thing here is, how does Paul respond? How does Paul respond to what happened to him? Luke says here that he saw what was happening to him. He has a snake that is gripping him by the fangs on his hand and he looks at it and he just shakes it off. Now, while he did this, there were people who were sitting there and they were waiting for him to die. They said they were waiting for him to either swell up as they had seen other people do. Or they knew for a fact that he would just fall dead. But for some reason, Paul seemed to be unfazed by what happened. How could he be so content? And here he has a snake hanging off his hand, venomous snake, and he just gets rid of it, just casts it off as if it's nothing. I want you to think about what kind of assurance that Paul must have had. One, I want you to remember he had the assurance of his immediate salvation. Do you remember what the word of the Lord was that came to him while he was on the ship? While they were worried about what was happening, when the storm was convincing them they were going to die? The word of the Lord came to Paul. You will stand before Caesar. You're going to stand before Caesar. And so for Paul, whether it is a shipwreck or a snake, he had the assurance from the word of God that God would protect him. That means that no matter what happened, there was nothing that would prevent what God had predetermined and ordained to happen from happening. But not only did he have assurance in the immediacy, but he also had eternal assurance. He knew that the end result of his life would be that he would spend an eternity with Jesus. So when the people around him thought that he was sure to die, he knew that he would live not because of him, but because that he knew that God was true to his word. And for this, he's able to continue his work. Likewise. 
We should be able to commit ourselves to the word of the Lord, knowing that we have the assurance of our faith. Now, Paul ended up being so committed to his work that he was being called to people and they were being healed. He was doing so. And when he was doing his work, when his work was completed, he continued on his way. Drop down to verse number 17. It says, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation for this reason. Therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers Coming here has reported or spoken evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So after Paul had, they had been settled for three months, they have finally made it. They are finally able to get to Rome. And I want you to notice something that happens here. Is it significant that Paul is preaching the gospel? Yes. Is it significant that Paul has appealed to the highest authority and is sharing the gospel to the highest authority in Caesar? Absolutely. But I want you to notice something. You remember there's all this ruckus about Paul and they're telling about Paul and all these crimes that he's committed. And we basically have seen whether it's been Felix or Festus or Herod Agrippa. They all realize that he's probably innocent of anything. Yet he has been determined at this point that he wants to appeal to Caesar, not to stand before Caesar and try his case, but to share the gospel. But I want you to see that it was truly the Lord who was orchestrating this and not the enemies of Paul. Did you notice what they said when he arrived? They said, we ain't got no letters from nobody about you. Nobody has even said a word evil against you. Now, I want you to think about this. The whole reason Paul, we thought, was on a ship, a ship that crashes, a ship that breaks. He gets his vision, thinks he's going to die, ends up on an island, gets bitten by a snake, appears that he's going to die, doesn't die, stands there, hears a whole bunch of people, ends up finally in Rome. is because we think that he wants to plead his case before Caesar, only to get to Caesar and realize there is no case to plead. What's the point? 
The point is that all that Paul was doing had nothing to do with his enemies. It had nothing to do with what people thought they were doing to him. It was because Paul had a mission, and that was to share and spread the faith, the truth of the revelation that Jesus was a substitutionary atonement for our sins. That's the only thing he wanted to do. How could he, knowing he was innocent, knowing that there was a chance that he was going to get there and there would be no case against him, why in the world would he still appeal to Caesar and put himself through this? Because he had the assurance of his faith. Listen, the only way a person can behave the way Paul is behaving is not because you think Jesus was risen. It's because you know Jesus is the risen Savior and it completely shapes, it changes, it turns the way that you think and the way that you live. Now, many of us will say that we're Christians. We will say we have that assurance. But how is it that that assurance is not having an impact on the way that we live? He says that it is for the hope of Israel that I am in these chains. For the sake of the gospel, Paul was willing to suffer and be imprisoned, knowing that many would come to faith because of it. He knew that something and someone greater than himself had sent him on the mission to where he was going. Now, where does Paul get this? Where is that zeal for truth, this passion coming from inside of him? Look all the way back. When the apostles were first commissioned, they were told that they were being sent to be witnesses into Judea, into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you are a Middle Eastern person. During this time, do you know where they thought the ends of the earth was? It's Rome. The ends of the earth were Rome. That's where Paul had gone. Paul had gone to the ends of the earth. Now, obviously, they're going to learn much later, as we know, that Rome wasn't truly the ends of the earth, that the earth actually extended much further than that. But you'll remember that the only reason the gospel has even extended to the ends of the earth is because there was a man who was willing to be in prison. There was a man who was willing to write down all the things that were happen, happening to him. He writes 13 of the epistles of the New Testament. And those letters complete the final revelation and canon of God. The gospel has reached even further to people like us, people who are Gentiles, because Paul had an assurance of his faith. And then we're going to jump down to verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. 
lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. But then he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Essentially, what we see here is that Paul dedicated to the gospel, stationed himself in Rome. He went to a place where he had no family, he had no prospects, and he lived there for two years. After being rejected, he still commits himself to the gospel. Listen, Acts is written and recorded to us by the blood of martyrs, men and women who are willing to be put to death for the truth that they could grasp onto, knowing that he who began a good work in them, he who has begun a good work in us, is able to perform that work until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you a little example of elementary assurance. So this past Monday... Y'all know the Yukon, the trap car, right? So the trap car don't have a, a working gas gauge. I sent the thing off to get it fixed, got it back, still on work. Turns out it's probably something much cheaper than what I paid to get fixed. And so I typically do a good job of gauging how much gas is in the car. Well, this particular time I had to stop by here last Monday, and I ended up talking to Pastor Mike way longer than I expected. And anybody who knows me knows that I always leave the car running. Like, that is a bad habit. And so the car ran for an hour, all right? And um, I don't know if you know this, but you probably shouldn't let a big tank like that just run for an hour idle. And, you know, some in my head said, you know, I probably should get some gas, but you know me, didn't feel like going. And so I'm thinking, all right, completely forget about it. I go to pick up the kids on Tuesday. And we got all the way to our exit. We're getting off on the Gardendale exit. And I press, you know, the acceleration. The car is not going anywhere. And I'm like, all right, something's going horribly wrong here. But, you know, the Lord is sovereign. And so it just so happens I could barely turn it, but I get all the way right to the edge of, like, the shell that's on the way to our house. But it's up a hill, and I'm not going to try to push this Yukon. And so Elliot is in the car. I have no idea what's going on with the car because I tend to overcomplicate things. Out of the mouth of babes, Elliot goes, are we out of gas? <laughs> And I was like, oh, we might be out of gas. And he goes, are we going to walk home? And I was like, no, I'm going to go. I'm just going to walk right here to the gas station, get, a gas, get the gas and put it in there. And it turns out, got the little five-gallon thing, put gas in there, drove it right up to the pump, filled it up. And I asked Ellen when I got back to the car, I said, did you want to walk home? He was like, Yes. And I was like, why in the world would that boy want to walk home? But then I started thinking about it. Really, he had no idea how far away home was, did he? The only thing that he knew is that he was with his daddy. And at the end of the day, no matter how far away home was, he was sure daddy was going to get him home. 
That is the same kind of assurance that we have to have. We don't have any clue how far home is away. We may be years away from home. We may be months away from home. We may be decades away from home. But at the end of the day, our assurance should be God's going to get us home. He's going to take care of us. He's going to carry us home because he's promised that to us. He has promised to us that if he has began a good work in us, he is going to complete that work in us. And so I want to leave you with this and then we'll close and we're done. But I want to leave you with this. This sweet hymn, if you don't know it, I want you to ponder these lyrics over this week. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending, bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the word. God, we thank you that you have given us assurance. God, you have given us the assurance of our faith. You have given us the hope and the promise of our eternity, God. That for all of us who believe in you, who have been redeemed by your blood, we we are going to be with you. There's no doubt about it. And so, God, if we are struggling to remember that, help us see the evidence of that in our lives. Help us see how we are harshly critical of those around us because we lack assurance. Help us see how we are judging rapidly what a person's life may be or trying to interpret the situations that are occurring in our lives, trying to discern in the moment what's happening without fixing our eyes and our hope on you. God, it is so easy for us to get lost in that pessimistic attitude that we develop, that that bend towards sin, that leaning on our flesh and our comfort and those things. God, that is us losing our perspective of assurance. God, help us see when we over overly focus ourselves on what's happening right now, how we are losing sight of what you are doing. Help us remember, God, let let us look at the example of Paul who knew that he was facing a faulty court and a fake crime and false charges. And yet, because of his dedication to you, because of his dedication to the gospel, he spared no expense that he was willing to station himself in a land that was not his own and witness to a people that he didn't know. Because of you. God, help us see and help us know that our faith is fixed. It is secure in you. That nothing and no one can shake us. Nothing can separate us from your love. And no one can snatch us out of your hand. But God, there are people who may be watching. There are even people who may be here today who say, all I have is right now. I have no hope in the future. I have no hope for tomorrow. I'm dreading Monday. I'm dreading 
a year from now. I'm dreading 20 years from now because I have no idea what's going to happen in my life. God, help them see that the only way they will have assurance will be in you. So, God, if they don't know you, if they don't have that hope, if they don't have that joy, that peace that you provide, God, let this be the day that you intervene in their lives and bring them that hope, bring them that joy, bring them that assurance. But more than anything, save them from their sins. God, we thank you, God, as we are heading into the last week of our fast, that you will be with us, God, these last eight days, that you will keep us, that you will help us spend our time with you. Strip of us of our idols, God, so that only you remain. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.